um, and invite you to respond a little bit as we begin our sermon today. I'm going to list a few marketing slogans and invite you to name what companies you associate with them as I say them. Just do it. All right. The ultimate driving experience. All right. Finger licking good. All right. Think different. The last one. The happiest place on earth. WCF, did someone say? <laughs> all right. You can all show that you've been brainwashed by media. All right. You know, through the thoughtful process and massive marketing budgets, these companies have positioned themselves in the collective consciousness of America uh, so that anyone who hears them links those phrases with the identity and brand of each company. Every Sunday at WCF, we do something similar, but with zero marketing budget. You hear the four statements that we open with, and say them out with me if you know them. Authentic community, you can read them too. Vibrant worship, personal transformation, and social impact. Now, they may be stated in different, uh, with slight nuances, or in different orders, but these word pairings have developed over the life of WCF to articulate what we hope to be, to, to nurture as faith, uh, as a faith community of Jesus followers. So as we start things up again this fall, the elders thought it would be helpful for us to remind ourselves of why we exist as a faith community and how we hope to live out these values together. Over the next few weeks, we'll be talking through each of these four statements in a sermon series we called, we've entitled, We Are WCF, as Matt had introduced us to earlier in the service. During the pandemic, many of us have adapted to 18 months of virtual church, where we can hop on whenever we want to, to listen to a sermon and sing along. But I wonder, is this all that we are called to be as a faith community? We've gained some convenience with the use of technology, but what have we lost in the process? In today's message, we, I want to look at what it means to be an authentic community. The passages today provide snapshots of how God's people express their faith together with others. The text in Acts describes the communal life at the in, in infancy of the church. We're told that they gathered regularly together. They, they heard the apostles' teaching. They prayed. Now, I get it. They, they met daily. And they had no remote or virtual option. There was no on-demand church for you to queue up when you slept in and missed the beginning of service. There's no pushing pause when you need to go take the baking out of the oven as you're listening to the service. Oh, I knew that there's people who do that. They had to gather to hear the apostles' teaching and share meals together as a significant act of hospitality, especially in the ancient world. No one, we're told, is left in need. There was joy experienced amongst them, so much so that people were being added to their numbers daily. Take a look at 42, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This seems like a kind of community that I hope we can aspire to, except maybe the daily gatherings for an introvert like me. I could probably do a couple times a week. You know, Luke describes their commitment to these four things, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, 
and to uh, sharing a meal together. And I want to dig into this idea of fellowship that's referred to here. Now, when I think of the word fellowship, this is what I often picture. Lord of the Rings. Or in this town, you might hear the word fellowship used to refer to some form of internship with an organization. And these contexts imply a shared action or interest in a field, which are an extension of this Greek word used here to translate, that translates into English as fellowship. The Greek word here is koinonia, which means holding something in common. And for the early church and for us today, what holds us together isn't just diversity, isn't just love, or what we like about God. What holds us in common is the belief in this living God of Scripture and in God's action in the world revealed in Jesus Christ. The fellowship unites us. This fellowship unites us in mutual cooperation in God, worship of God, in working with God, and doing the will of God as God does that in the world. Fellowship is so crucial to our identity here at WCF that it's even the name of our church. We are Washington Community Fellowship. We're a fellowship united by Christ and for Christ gathering in Washington, D.C. In fact, we value this sense of community and cooperation so much that we've reinforced it with the word community. We are a community fellowship. We're not just a community church as an institution, even though I think there's a Washington Community Church in the neighborhood, or a community center as a place for shared activities and interests. We are a community fellowship. We are a fellowship united by Christ and for Christ that understands God in Christ together as a community and through community. We experience true fellowship with one another through community with each other and with God. Now, when most people think of fellowship, we think of those like us and those that think like us or who share our passions. We think of fellowship as individual relationships with those in our maybe immediate proximity or those who look like us in skin tone or in class or in education. And often in our culture today, we pre-filter our community based on our preferences. Our apps do that for us now and our interests. But the early church would have a hard time recognizing this kind of fellowship that we are inclined to in our modern world. Uh, David Swanson wrote a book called Rediscipling the White Church, and he highlights how the communion table of the early church challenged the Roman Empire's hierarchical views of the way that things were meant to be. I will say a bit more about the significance of communion in a few moments, but back to this idea of fellowship. A fellowship suggests that our action and our activity in the world are enveloped in relationship with one another and with God. Fellowship with Jesus is inseparable from fellowship with others, and especially with those who don't look like you. In other words, our sense of community and our sense of fellowship with one another is informed first by our sense of fellowship with the living God. So when we refer to this idea of authentic community, it describes a people gathered around the work of God in Christ, inviting all to come into fellowship. Fellowship is extended to all as we are, and just as we come to God as we are. 
And this is the one important way that we hope to be authentic in our community. Now, in many ways, the word authenticity and authentic is, uh, in many ways, the word authenticity is the opposite of the word hypocrisy. Authenticity is the opposite of hypocrisy. See, when we're authentic, we are real with our joys and our accomplishments. But we're also real with our struggles and our weaknesses. Now, we don't have to have everything together when we come together. That's the beautiful thing of God's uh, church and of God's kingdom. We come to God as we are. We discover that being honest with ourselves is often when we find that we can be most honest before God. Rather than hiding behind our masks of, of fear and of insecurity and shame. To be authentic in our lives is to name those things in our lives. It's often to, uh, the, in this uncovering of, of those things in our lives that we discover God and we discover and, and meet God in the midst of all of that. Now, it can be scary uh, at times or feel unsafe to do so. But when we discover God's incredible love for us, that uncovering, that, that process of uncovering and unsifting in our lives is actually a step of freedom rather than a step of fear. And there's something special that happens when we, come be, when we become more aware of God in that uncovering. We find that we can come as we are, no matter what kind of story we have, what kind of baggage we carry, or what kind of joys and accomplishments we have. But we find that as we come as we are, we don't stay as we are when we come to meet God. Now, if you spend any time on social media or even just watching media, you'll often come across stories of someone who's sharing their discovery of their authentic self. And it's celebrated as an act of liberation. And it certainly is. In our culture, presenting our authentic selves to the world, there's this presupposition that you are the one who's doing the authenticating. The journey to self-discovery is a recognition of these false stories and these expectations that we are to discover along this process and that we are to be set free from. What's going on there is that we are doing all the knowing. And then we present ourselves to the world and we say, now, will you know me as the true me? But in Scripture, we find that there are all others involved in this process of authenticating. It's not just presenting yourself to the world and say, know me. Instead, it's a process of being known. It's a term that has framed the life work of one of our elders, Kurt Thompson. Being known shifts this posture of self-discovery. Our knowing of self derives from knowing of someone else who knows us better than we know ourselves. The relationship between David and Jonathan is often used to illustrate the power of true friendship. But I want to approach it from the perspective of authenticity. In 1 Samuel 2, uh, 23, as Roz read for us, we see a different side of authenticity than we're used to thinking about. It's not really an authenticity of expression on David's part, but an authenticity of compassion and affirmation that comes from Jonathan. The text describes a time in David's life when 
He was being pursued by King Saul. You see, King, the King Saul was the king that David had hoped to honor and serve with his life, but instead it, he finds that it's Saul who wants to take his life. So David is running around in the wilderness with 600 loyal men. And when Jonathan, Saul's son, comes out to meet and find David. It comes up on the screen here, and Jonathan comes to, to, to where David is. He finds him when David is hiding from everyone. We're told that Jonathan's motive is to help David find strength in God. Jonathan knows and names David's fears, leading off by the whole conversation by saying, do not be afraid. For those of you who are familiar, do you know anyone else who starts off a conversation in Scripture with the same sentence? Jonathan pledges support to David in his distress. Jonathan affirms that he is there to serve under David's leadership as the king of Israel. And ironically, this is the last time that they will actually ever see one another. The point is that those who experience this kind of authentic community find friends to help you see a different you and to help imagine a different future for you. Jonathan, in many ways, does what God do does throughout Scripture. God does the finding in our fearful hiding. God knows the state of our being, often when we don't know it ourselves, because we're overwhelmed by our circumstances. God names our fears. God gives us strength when we are weak. God comes to pledge support to us as we trust in God's Word. We find throughout Scripture that God's movement toward us is one of loving authentication. As we are being known by God, we move towards becoming our true, authentic selves. But this isn't a solo project. You know, last week, Kate shared a message on, uh, a wonderful message on the, Jesus as the model for human development. She spoke of the value of acknowledging our consolations and our desolations in that spiritual practice. And we should certainly do that on an individual basis personal basis. But how often do you share your consolations and your desolations with others, with other followers of Christ? Do we enjoy regular communion with others where we can share and support our each other in our consolations and our desolations? Where, we might, where, we, where might we experience our Jonathans? Or even better, where might we be Jonathan's to our David's. You know, as we kick into small group season this fall, that perhaps this is one area that you can step further into if you're already part of a small group. How can you be a Jonathan to the David's in your group? Or if you're not in a small group right now, not used to meeting regularly with a few other followers of Jesus, then perhaps consider joining a small group to move towards more authentic community. You know, whatever setting you find most encouraging for you, I hope that it can be an environment where you don't only just say, know me, but where you can say, I want, to be, I want to be be known by God as God knows you through the words and encouragement of others. Now, we've talked about this idea of authentic community. What about some of these practical ways of engaging in authentic community? Well, I just want to draw your attention to two things. 
One, it can be nurtured by being a community of conversation. You know, social media offers uh, a convenient window into the lives of our friends or those we follow. But it's mediated, it's a mediated and projected window. It gives us the illusion that we know our friends better without the demands of spending time with them. So when we have difficult conversations or potentially we make a divisive comment on one of their posts, it surprises us that they might act really harshly. At worst, we get deleted as a friend or, or we delete their comments. At best, we'll just have a negative outlook on them when we see their posts in the future. Now, Sherry Turkle is the author of Reclaiming Conversation. And she writes in a book uh, commenting on this idea of conversation, saying, computers offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. And then as programs got really good, the illusion of friendship without the demands of intimacy. But face to face, people ask for things that computers never do. Things go best if you pay close attention and know how to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Real people demand responses to what they are feeling. You know, texts, chats, emails, and even Zoom and, and uh, FaceTiming. These are all great uh, advances for connecting with others. But they are not the same as in-person conversations. And that's why this fall, we're looking to create op more opportunities for in-person gatherings, including our Sundays, safely, and to encourage conversations through the retreat that we're doing in a couple of weeks and, and through, uh, bring, by bringing back community celebration and concerns that have been such a part of our service. And if you joined us through the pandemic, this is something that we've, been, we've missed doing since we've gone online. It's that in-person uh, community and conversation that help nurture the best practice of empathy in us. It's in person that we learn to make eye contact with others and notice their facial expressions and the droop of their shoulders or the, the excitement in their shoulders. We don't get to ghost people until we feel ready to respond to something that they say. I wonder if you can you imagine if all of our conversations in person went something like this? Can you believe what happened today? I met the most amazing person. I think she could be the one. Oh, do tell. Uh, hello? Sorry, I had a work text to deal with. That's no fun. That's not a conversation. But that's what we think is community and connecting for most of our conversations now. You know, to build authentic community, we need to have conversations where we don't just speak, but we also listen. Where we allow uh, ourselves to notice people's expressions. Where we allow ourselves to be vulnerable to others. Where we can be fully present and open to where things might go in a conversation and not just assuming, I'm going to this conversation to get this out of this conversation. The reality is, is though, is that we all have X number of meaningful conversations that we can 
have because of the time we have. But how are you carving out time to have those kinds of conversations with others? Not just out of convenience. How are you making space and margin for impromptu conversations with neighbors and folks on the street or even after the service or inviting a friend out for coffee and a walk? Conversations as a way to build authentic community. Now, another great setting to build authentic community is through sharing a meal together. Now, a meal is where we need to do this delicate balance of laying down our preferences for the sake of the other. At a shared meal, we have to balance our schedules. But more than that, we have to disclose our preferences for food. Are you vegan or vegetarian or pescatarian or meditarian? Do you like white bread, whole bread, or no bread? And hopefully, we don't allow our preferences to divide ourselves from gathering together meaningfully. I find it significant that Jesus' last moments before his death were spent with his friends over a shared meal that we call the Last Supper. And at this meal described in John 13 that Roz read a portion of, we find that Jesus not only has a conversation with them, but he takes the step to serve them by washing their feet. Here's the teacher, the respected teacher, who steps down to serve his students in an unprecedented way. Now, we'll be unpacking this text a bit more over the next coming weeks, but for today, I want us to take note of how Jesus shares a meal and serves even those who would betray him. At this meal, even at this meal, Jesus demonstrates how hierarchies of who is in and who is out, who is safe and who is hostile, who is with me and who is against me, none of those take precedence over sharing a meal with them. Instead, it's a table of grace extended to all that breaks down walls of division. When we have a meal with others, it's one way that we can extend and experience authentic community, bringing people together no matter what their differences are. The movie Oslo is a, an adaptation of the play of the same name. It describes the conception of the Oslo Accord, which was signed in 1993 as an agreement between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Now the story focuses on this Norwegian couple picture, uh, portrayed here in the center of the image. They are burdened by the conflict in Israel and Palestine, and they feel compelled to bring together these two sides to the table when neither side will officially recognize the existence of the other side. And the moment you begin talking to the other side, it's officially recognizing their existence. So there's no talks happening. Yet through their hospitality, they invite two parties to Oslo, Norway, and they demonstrate hospitality to them and using some wisdom, these unofficial representatives from Israel and Palestine meet each other for the very first time. That was, and then they began working on these, uh, a draft of principles of agreement. That was the hard work that they actually needed to do, but it was only through the hospitality of eating and drinking together where they shared stories of their childhood and families that the ice was broken between the two parties. And that table set the environment for authentic knowing and fellowship between them. They began to see each other in their commonalities and in their humanity rather 
than their tribes that divided them. You know, in a few moments, we are going to come to the table as a reminder of the community that has been formed through the sacrifice of Jesus that this communion meal signifies. And at this meal, we are reminded that the true and authentic fellowship, of our true and authentic fellowship with God, that doesn't come through our efforts, but through the action and the initiative of God on our behalf. In Christ, God moves to show us the greatest hospitality towards humanity that overcomes the barrier of sin and its curse, death. At this meal, we find that being known by the living God of the universe, that we, are be, uh, that we are being known by the living God of the universe, and we aren't struck dead in the presence of a holy God because of our shame and because of our brokenness. Instead, we are healed, and we are made whole. And like Jonathan comes to David at Christ's table, we can come to God and find strength, and encouragement. Our place is affirmed. We are reminded of who commits to helping us in, to be the best version of ourselves. It's the living God. And because of this meal, we too can have uh, the resource to extend authentic community towards others with radical generosity, with radical boldness, in a way that says no one is outside from being invited to this table. Now, you might be listening and saying, uh, Andrew, have you forgotten that we are in a pandemic right now? You're talking about in-person conversations, in-person meals. And I get it. We are still in pandemic times. And I know that in-person gatherings and conversations and meals are decisions that we all need to make with prudence. We, can, we should still get vaccinated. We should still wear masks, wear what's needed. Don't take unnecessary risks. But I encourage you to check your instinct to stay virtual in all things. Check your desire to use the pandemic to decline true community because it's inconvenient or because it's uncomfortable or because it's just a good excuse for not spending time that, with someone that you don't really want to spend time with. As much as possible and as is safe, find opportunities to share a meal, have a conversation, participate in a small group, do all these things. Discover authentic community for yourself, with others, and ultimately with God. May it be so in our midst. We are WCF. Amen.